The title of today's focus group slash sermon is Does Church Add Up? In a couple of weeks' time, Gordon and myself, along with another three happy Claremont campers, will attend a special presbytery conference with the encouraging title, Conference on State of Decline of National Church. Sadly, judging by that title, it's safe to say that the church nationally overall doesn't add up. Numerically, across Scotland, there has been a pretty steep decline in church membership stroke active involvement in many local congregations. There are chinks of light in some areas, but overall, we don't see a very positive picture. It was absolutely fantastic to witness a few weeks ago, round about our 51st anniversary, those who joined Claremont, who became members of Claremont. Especially for me, as one who has a connection to Claremont for 50 of those years, not so much in with the bricks as in before the bricks. Now, I know what you're going to say, doesn't it look a day over 26? Or, if you think that, maybe you should go to Specsavers. <laughs> However, let's check our vision statement, which envisages that new people are seen at every service. Newcomers are identified, welcomed, integrated into the fellowship. It is commonplace to see people becoming Christians, having faith nurtured, and sharing their faith. Each of us will have our own perspective on the extent to which that vision is currently being realized in the Claremont Church family. The late Eugene Peterson, who wrote the uh, message paraphrase of the Bible, covers today's passage as follows. They committed themselves to the teaching of the apostles, the life together, the common meal, and the prayers. Everyone around was in awe, all those wonders and signs done through the apostles, and all the believers lived in a wonderful harmony, holding everything in common. They sold whatever they owned, and they pooled their resources so that each person's need was met. They followed a daily discipline in the temple, followed by meals at home. Every meal was a celebration, exuberant and joyful as they praised God. People in general liked what they saw. Every day their number grew as God added those who were being saved. I want to share with you a wee bit of Eugene Peterson's experience when as a young pastor He was tasked with establishing a new congregation, in some ways similar to the task given to Mr. Sawyer's Claremont's first minister by the Church of Scotland. Peterson went round the neighborhood, knocking on doors, trying to get some folks together who could form a core group to build a congregation around. Peterson takes up the story. 
In six weeks, I thought I had enough people to meet Jesus' quorum of two or three gathered together. I announced our first service of worship to be conducted in the basement of our home. Forty-six people showed up. We sat on metal folding chairs in an unfurnished basement. It was winter, and there was a red sea of mud to negotiate before arriving at the basement entrance. It was obvious that we would need to build a sanctuary and take take on extraordinary commitments. But unattractive as the surroundings were and formidable as the task loomed, things went well. People gathered, invited friends and neighbours, made financial commitments, employed an architect. In two and a half years, we had a sanctuary built and dedicated to the glory of God. I didn't enjoy the work of those two and a half years. I did it with my whole heart because I wanted to be a pastor and have a congregation that I could lead in the worship of God. I was pleased that all these people were willing to forgo the comforts of a comfortable pew for a few years to give their time and money and leadership to form a congregation and construct a building so that we could provide a place and a people for the worship of God in this community. The organizational work was now over, the construction complete. We were, I thought, ready to begin. We could spend all our time and energy in our real work, worship and witness and mission. I had no reason to suppose that not everyone felt the way I did. Then I got one of the biggest surprises in my life. After two or three weeks of celebrative gathering in our new sanctuary, attendance began to decline. I couldn't understand what was going on. I visited the people, inquired, probed. I learned to my dismay that nothing at all was wrong. It was just that there was nothing to do now. The challenge had been met successfully. I was advised by my denominational supervisors to start new projects immediately, recapture the people's enthusiasm with something they could get their hands on. I respectfully declined their counsel, for I had suddenly awakened to the fact that what we can get our hands on is idols. I thought that we were here to worship God and love our neighbors living into holy mystery. There were a few people who were also there to worship God and practice love of neighbor. They stayed and matured and glorified God, but not nearly as many as I'd thought. It turned out that far more people than I would have guessed had helped develop and build a new church because it was a religious project an idol that gave meaning and focus in the context of something worthwhile and suggestive of transcendence. They were not interested in God. Worshiping God was not emotionally exciting. Loving neighbors was not ego-satisfying. They drifted away and went on to get involved in other community projects. Sadly, it's too often the case that in church life that we can become distracted with what Peterson calls religious projects. Now, 
these things may be worthwhile in themselves. They may not be bad things in themselves. And they may be temporarily attractive to some folks. But when these various religious projects become central to the life of the fellowship, then in the long term, we will become unattractive. And in fact, can tragically communicate the message to others that Christ has left the building, which he may well have done. The bulk of Acts chapter 2 describes the events of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was poured out on the apostles as Jesus had promised. As the apostles waited for this outpouring of the Spirit, we read in Acts 1.14, they all joined together constantly in prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. So already now that Jesus is no longer physically among them, the centrality and importance of prayer in the life of the believers is clearly established. Prayer is not an afterthought. Prayer is not something you do if you've got time left after doing the important things like watching River City in the telly. And you've got two chances to watch River City now in the telly, Monday and Tuesday night. <laughs> Believers, proactively, deliberately, intentionally, meeting for prayer should be one of the hallmarks of every church family. The Spirit is poured out, and nobody there on Pentecost that day could miss it. We are told that there were many God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven staying in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. As the Spirit was poured out, all these folks could hear the believers declaring the wonders of God to them in their own language, so much so that some concluded the believers had been on the bevy. Peter is then empowered by the Spirit to address the crowd by explaining the Scriptures and preaching the Gospel. He concludes, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, this is the same Peter who a few short weeks before, when asked, if he knew Jesus, insisted, I don't know him. What a transformation. What a transformation. Now, let's be clear. Peter doesn't say to these folks, half apologetically, something like, we're a wee group of friends with similar interests, and we like to meet up and chew the fat and 
it's a good laugh, and it keeps us out of the way of the buses, and of course, we won't ask much of you, or maybe you're looking for a new hobby, or what do you think? You fancy joining us? Peter makes clear that folks must make a clear choice, ultimately, to follow Jesus and commit their lives to Him or not. We're then told those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. So for those who accepted Jesus, who committed their lives to him, we are given in today's passage a snapshot, a summary of the features, the characteristics of the new Jesus-like lives which were evident for all to see in the early church in Jerusalem. We are told they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. The believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They were eager to learn from the apostles, who had, after all, spent the previous three years in Jesus' company. What was this Jesus' life all about? They made sure, they made time to listen and learn from the apostles. Then there is fellowship, which describes the common life. They are devoted to each other. They share meals together. They break bread together. They share in such a way that folks' spiritual and material needs are met. They meet and eat in each other's homes. They meet daily in the temple courts, quite possibly at the set times for daily temple prayer. We've highlighted already the importance of prayer to the early church. Now, over the last few weeks, I've had quite a lot of uh, presbytery-related stuff to be getting on with, among other things. And I would like to be able to tell you that I've spent a fair amount of time in prayer. However, more often than not, I have to confess, I find myself thinking something like, I'll need to speak to so-and-so, send emails, organize meetings. How am I ever going to get this stuff done? It's too much. I'm fed up with this church stuff, and so on. Now, there are humdrum things that we have to do. They just have to be done. But how easily we can become caught up in a flurry of activity, which leaves us feeling jaded, tired, frustrated. And incidentally, if we're like that, most of the time is likely to be a very unattractive witness to anyone wondering what being a Christian and giving your life to Jesus looks like in practice. Now, we don't know the precise practical arrangements of the believer's life together. And quite clearly for us today, in our context, the practicalities will be different. Nevertheless, what has been called the four marks of the church, teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer clearly go together. Tom Wright notes 
where no attention is given to teaching and to constant lifelong Christian learning, people quickly revert to the worldview or mindset of the surrounding culture and end up with their mind shaped by whichever social pressures are most persuasive, with Jesus somewhere around as a pale influence or memory. Where people ignore the common life of the Christian family, the church family, the technical term often used is fellowship, which is more than friendship, but not less. They become isolated and often find it difficult to sustain a living faith. Where people no longer share in the breaking of bread, the early Christian term for the simple meal that took them back to the upper room in remembrance of Jesus, they are failing to raise the flag which says Jesus' death and resurrection are at the center of everything. And whenever people do all these things but neglect prayer, they are quite simply forgetting that Christians are supposed to be heaven and earth people. Prayer makes no sense whatsoever unless heaven and earth are designed to be joined together and we can share in that already. Let's be quite clear what the early church was not, and we must not be either. It was not a cozy, holy huddle. We looked last week at Jesus' call for each of us to be salt and light in the world. And David challenged us to think what that might specifically, practically look like in each of our own lives. And I quote, The challenge is, if you have trusted Christ and His light has touched you, don't hide it. Let it out. Share your faith. Share the hope you have of eternal life. Ultimately, our great calling and joyful mission is to shine God's light through all we do so people sense there is some other worldly force behind us. A light shines through us, like a disturbing light that emerges at night when you're trying to sleep, and you have to go and find its source. Our lives can so display God's good news and glory that people ask, where does that come from? The early church was countercultural. As we read on in Acts, we see Peter continues to preach and teach and heal in the public arena. Following the healing of a lame beggar, he finds himself being questioned and in fact jailed by the Jewish authorities. He holds his ground, proclaims the gospel, and as a consequence, many more people believe. Then Peter and John are ordered not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Peter and John are unequivocal in their reply. 
Which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. There's a statement. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. What do you think about that? How does that relate to you? Can you not help speaking about Jesus? I've, I mean, a pretty good job on very often, on many occasions, of not speaking of Jesus when I know fine well that I should. They continue to preach and heal. And persecution from the authorities increases as vested interests are challenged. But again we read, the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day in the temple courts from, and from house to house, they never stopped proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. Commenting again on today's passage, Tom Wright observes, there is an attractiveness, an energy about a life in which we stop clinging on to everything we can get and start sharing it, giving it away, celebrating God's generosity by being generous ourselves. And that attractiveness is one of the things that draws other people in. They were praising God, says Luke, verse 47, and stood in favor with the people. And day by day the Lord was adding to their number those who were being saved, being rescued. And of course they were. And of course God did. That's how it works. Where the church today finds itself stagnant, unattractive, humdrum, and shrinking, and sadly there are many churches in the Western world, at least of which that has to be admitted, it's time to read Acts 42 to 47 again. Get down on our knees and ask what isn't happening which should be happening. The gospel hasn't changed. God's power hasn't diminished. People still need rescuing. What are we doing about it? Amen. We sing only by grace.